looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. Hey, I know we have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows, and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world, but I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans, because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars. However, none of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons. But I do have a little suggestion for you. SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, they obtain autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises. Whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as, besides getting their autographs, you can do live Zoom calls with your favorite stars. You can do personalized videos for people, greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions, check them out and see the options they have signaturedhorror.com that's right signaturehorror.com
Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hi, this is Leland Sklar of the Immediate Family, and I just want to tell you that you are listening to Crazy Train Radio, the best show in town. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This next guest is a legendary session musician, as well as playing in live shows for many, many artists. Sometimes facts can be wrong on the internet, but this man has contributed to 2,600 albums, not 26,000 albums where you might read on some occasions, and has done his share of soundtracks for film and television productions. Many of the superstars he has worked with or come across over his legendary 50-year career appear in his new coffee table book. And some of those stars include Gwyneth Paltrow, Jack Nicholson, Bonnie Raitt, Kathy Seagal, Bernie Williams, and many, many more. This book can be purchased at LelandSkylarBeard.com. This next guest, Leland Scalar. How you doing, sir? Welcome. I'm doing. I'm doing great. Actually, one correction. I've, I've worked on approximately 2,600 albums, not 26,000. I'd have yeah. to be about a thousand years old to do that. But thank you for the for the shout out on that. So first and foremost, because yeah. I just heard about the book, and we talk about the book that can be got obtained on your website. And this we're doing this on Zoom, so this is with all full greetings. So gotta ask you with the coffee table book everybody loves me lovely gesture we just gave each other (laughs) of the middle finger which is at least in your case with all love and respect all love so where did that whole process of people giving you the finger and taking pictures of everything and where did this metamorphosize well, it, it, it's a funny story. When we were on the road with Phil Collins in 2004 doing the first final farewell tour, <laughs> um, they, <clears throat> they hired a, a, a bass tech for me for the tour. Now, normally I've never had a tech on the road. I usually grab, if I need anything, like I'll get the guitar tech or somebody to come over and help me out. But generally I'm pretty self-sufficient. So this guy, Steve Winstead was hired for the tour and, um, he came onto the tour, I think, coming off of like 
an intense tour where he was needed by the bass player constantly. And when he sh showed up, he said, so what do you need? What do you need? And I said, I don't know, nothing. I don't, I really don't think I need anything. So we had kind of a running joke because we were on the road for a long time of, uh, he would always just kind of look at me and shake his head. Well, towards the end of the tour, there was talk that Phil Collins was probably going to retire at the end of the tour and kind of call it at that point. And we had about a hundred some people on the road. And I thought I may never see a lot of these people again, if this is the case, because they were from all over the world, the crew guys and everybody. So I thought I would take a picture of everybody and make a little folder and put it in my computer just as for memories. And of course, the first guy I go up to is Steve, my bass tech, and he's sitting at his laptop working. And I said, hey, Steve, give me a smile. And he's, he's like this, and he just goes, gives me the <laughs> finger. And I kind of look at the picture, and I kind of, because I'm not one of these people that runs around giving everybody the finger all the time. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I mean, every once in a while you do it, but that's it. Um, but I went and I got Phil Collins. I got his manager. I got the band. I got the crew. I got truck drivers, everybody got up to probably about a hundred some pictures and put it away for a couple of years, just um, didn't think about it. Then I went on the road with the group Toto and I thought, well, maybe I'll do the same thing with those guys. And, and I ended up with like another 80 pictures by the end of that. Then all of a sudden it just took on a life of its own. Um, I would go to the NAMM show and I would get tons and tons of people at the at the music industry trade show i would go to i went to mexico city to do a uh, master class at the fermata music um, school in mexico city got all the students to give me the finger um, <laughs> and it just took on a life of its own and i ended up at this point i've got about twelve thousand photographs of everybody you could imagine um, i mean jay leno um, matthew mcconaughey um, Cheryl Crow. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of endless. Um, but also just average people uh, on the streets um, that, that I meet. And, uh, and, and so people have been saying to me for years, do a book, you got to do a book of this. And I've never had time. And like at the beginning of this year, we were really busy with the band that I'm in called The Immediate Family. And um, we had just the last live gig I played was with our band and it was a, um, a rock legends cruise that um, went from uh, Fort Lauderdale to Grand Cayman and back at the, at the end of February. And it was Roger Daltrey and Nancy Wilson and Mark Farner and all these different people on the boat. And as soon as we got home from this cruise is when COVID hit. And, uh, and needless to say, uh, all the, our work for the year um, all the work I had booked for, for over a year, like every other musician, completely disappeared. And I'm not the kind of person that sits around comfortably. So I ended up getting busier than I've ever been. Uh, I, I kind of went, I met a guy at a party who has a, um, he's, an, he's an artist, does um, all kinds of beautiful um it, it's hard to explain what comes out of there. He, he does um, documents people's art collections by doing real high-end um, photography on them, design work, and, and does books and stuff. And we met at a party and I told him about the finger thing. And he said, let's do it. We ha you have the time. And so we, we honed it down to 6,000 photographs of people giving me the finger. 
and uh, it's from babies. My the youngest I have is little babies, and the oldest is I think 104. My parents are in there. My sister, Malika. <laughs> but um, so I had no excuse um, not to do this. So we've done it, and I've been working like a dog fulfilling orders because with COVID, um, I really can't get any help. I really, I mean, I can't take the chance on it. So I've, I've got a warehouse packed with books and every day I go over and fill my truck with books, bring them home, uh, print out labels, sign the books that are to be signed, load them all back up in my truck, go to the post office, uh, dump them, go back. I mean, it's like around the clock. And, um, but the response has been incredible to it. I mean, it's, uh, everybody's writing to me who's gotten them just saying, this is so much fun. Um, and I did that, and then I've done a YouTube channel that I've, that I've put up a video every single day since the pandemic began. And uh, you have a clubhouse and, and a, a gift store. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, but um, I think it, it's such a dark time for us that I wanted to do things that would make people smile. I mean, because I, I, I can get as dark as everybody else because so much of my life was taken away. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I love the most, which is touring and being out playing music with my friends and stuff, was taken away, uh, be it temporarily. But temporarily could be, you know, a year and a half or two years of, of that by the time this is safe again. So we, we just don't know. So I'm keeping myself really busy every day doing stuff uh, with our band. We have like... We've been. We just released our um, third video um, on it. We've got uh, another EP coming out. We finished our album uh, before the COVID pandemic hit, um, but we were supposed to release it in November. But we're holding off until early next year for that. And Denny Tedesco, who made the documentary The Wrecking Crew, is making a documentary film about us. So that's going on. So. I'm really busy as hell, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, but that's how I function. I'm pretty, I, I'm one of those people, I think, if you really started looking at those initials like ADHD and AD, you know, that I'm, I'm kind of a poster boy, too, for that. I, I'm not good at relaxing and sitting around. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been the hard part of this year is seeing what's happened to humanity through this. I've, I've, a number of friends have died. I, have, I know a number of people who are ill. Um, LA is, is going berserk right now. There's zero hospital beds left. Um, I mean, they've got people in parking lots, uh, in, in hallways. It's, it's so tragic and so frightening. And uh, I just begging people to stay safe, you know, don't go out, don't do anything stupid. Just I want us all to be here when this is over. Exactly. Kind of situation. So I tend to ramble on. So you just jump right. in anytime you want me to stop. <laughs> all good. No, it's all good. And I'll hold on. I'm gonna shut that phone off. Done. And it was funny. I was telling some family members who moved back, moved back in with me with mm -hmm. this whole COVID and all. Yeah. And I was telling them about an interview I heard on my trip. We were talking about today with George Clooney and mm -hmm. to close it out with the end of the interview. And of course it was serious XM and whatnot. Yeah. He said the host who's very well known 
and fans of the show know who I'm talking about. I won't say Howard Stern, but <laughs> I didn't even hear that. Yeah, no, no, yeah, <laughs> bypassing. But Howard asked George of any because you know holiday season now and trying to be positive yeah. of what you're talking about now, as far as what we've had to deal with this year. Yeah, and George said yes, Merry Christmas, but wear your fucking mask. <laughs> well, he said it's it's perfect. I mean, th th that's the whole thing is we're going to have to, I mean, first off, people are going to have to make a serious sacrifice to get this behind us. Um, I see this all the time. I see people gathering in groups and, and not wearing masks. They're not distancing. And I go, this will never end if you're this way. The only thing I can hope for is that they can keep ramping up vaccines and get as many people vaccinated as possible. And then if you choose not to do it and you get sick, it's your call. I just don't want to get sick because of some idiot. Yeah. So I haven't really, the only time I go out is to go grocery shopping. And I do that, you know, quickly. I'm in and out. I stay away from people. And, or just, you know, going, even when I go to the post office to, to, uh, to uh, unload a truckload of books, um, I'm not going into the post office. I, they they buzz me in the, to the back and I go to a loading dock and just fill a big container with boxes of books and, and I'm gone. I don't see anybody, so I'm not worried about that. But um, I see people acting so deeply irresponsible through this. Uh, and, you know, I mean, to me, the first time I went to Japan was 1970 with James Taylor. And, and, and I'm looking around in Japan at that point and people who weren't feeling well put on a mask. They're out in public. And what's the big deal? You know, but these people, it's become like gun rights. And I mean, it's turned into this thing. And I could really, I, I won't say I could care less if somebody chooses not to do it, if they're going to be affected. But it's the fact that they're affecting the Other community. People. That's really the bad thing. And, and George is absolutely right. When you're going to go outside, you put a mask on, you keep your distance, you come back and wash your hands. And if we would have done this in the beginning, if we would have had leadership that immediately put on masks, listened to the scientists and, 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 and cut the bullshit and would have put on masks, done everything, we could have this so far behind us. Because I talk to friends all over the world and there's so many other countries that are so much farther um, along in healing than us because they, they hunkered down in the beginning and did it. It's not going away with vaccinations and then eventually there'll be the odd cases. But I think back to when I was a young kid and um, that was the time of the Salk vaccine for polio. And I remember the, the nurses, they, they had all the kids at the school, we had little sugar cubes and that's how they got the kids to do it. It wasn't shots, you ate a sugar cube that had the vaccine in it. And all of a sudden, there was no, there was, there was no polio, uh, so to speak, of after there had been a lot of polio. So these things can be addressed, but you have to do it smart. And this country's been so stupid, it's beyond comprehension. Yeah. And I mean, it I, pissed me off. I saw, I saw Pence getting a shot today, and I'm thinking, for all the damage you've done, you should be at the end of the line, not at the front of the line. Yeah. And I don't want to get political and all, but yeah. with all that stuff, but you're absolutely right. If that we had 
actual leadership and said, all right, six weeks, let's lock down, get, a, get into all that stuff, you know. It, yeah. A lot better place. Yeah. But you bring up a good point uh, as far as polio and vaccines, but something on the serious side that I want to bring up since you've yes, brought that up is, you know, at least of my generation and a little bit, are pe- there's some people fighting, oh, vaccines are bad for you, this or yeah. that, all that stuff, that whole conversation. Yeah. When you were growing up with the polio and they did what they did with the sugar cubes and the different were yeah. trying to deal with polio at the time. Do you remember either your parents or parents of other kids you knew saying bad things about medical and polio? Why do we want to have a vaccine? Or were they like, yeah. let's get the kids vaccinated if we can and try to yeah, play it smart? Uh, th- there's, there's such a, that anti-vaxxer movement that exists now uh, is, is, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, I, you know, even though I was a science major in school, I, I, under, I do have a basic understanding of, of this, though, and um, I tend to trust science when it comes to things like this far more than I, than I trust a politician or anybody. So when I was a kid and we were getting vaccinated for smallpox and polio and all that, um, it was standard. You, you know, I mean, the kids, everybody just went and did it. You felt fortunate that that when you saw, when you saw pictures of people spending the rest of their life in an iron lung because they had polio, man, I would chance a shot, you know, or a sugar cube uh, to do it. But there's become such this anti-science um, mentality by a part of our population that's really so much is built on ignorance and misinformation, um, this kind of, uh, and they do it on, on a lot of things besides um, vaccine. I mean, there's, there's so many things going on. When I was a kid, probably the only people that maybe weren't doing it was generally like on a religious basis. Like if they were, you know, I'm not sure if Seventh-day Adventist or any of those um, uh, some of those religions who really discourage, you know, going to a doctor and, and all that would have probably been not enthusiastic about vaccinations either. Um, but that that's their call. I mean, you know, that's, you know, whatever, whatever your situation is, you deal with it. But to hear these people talking now, you know, yeah. like, it's because Bill Gates wants to put chips in you to, you know, I mean, all this, stuff. I mean, the, the insanity and stupidity of all of this is, unbelievable but if they choose to go that route fine um but don't put me in harm's way yeah and so once we're all vaccinated and the people for the most part society is pretty well protected if we can get 75 percent of the people or 80 percent then the those few that feel that way then it's a crapshoot for them you know and they Mm -hmm. may live their life out and never get sick uh, there, I'm sure there's a ton of people that never got polio vaccines that never got polio, but I certainly would rather increase my odds of being safe um, by this. I mean, I, I went in and I had a shingles shot and a pneumonia shot and a flu shot this year. Mm-hmm. I feel fine. Um, I may never get shingles or pneumonia or the flu if I hadn't gone in there, but you know, what, it's not a big deal just to go in and add that extra layer of safety in your life. 
And, you know, I, it's funny. I studied history, but I was also, I use common sense. I'm, mm -hmm. I look at the scientists. I look at different things, you know, the experts who study the different things. The one thing I always say is I'm not going to hire an electrician to put my roof on. Exactly. You know I mean? I'm going to listen to the person who's the expert in that field. Yeah, but, exactly. But what do that, I know? Yeah, but yeah, but I mean, that's the craziness of this is these people are listening. Well, I mean, uh, we one more statement and then we can lose the politics here for the rest. Yeah. But, you know, when I look at at. I, I, I've never, um, during the course of these past four years, never pulled punches. I've been kicked off of Facebook on an average of 150 days a year for political rants and stuff. But I've never seen a more incompetent bunch of morons in my life. Every person sitting in a cabinet position is the least competent person to sit in those positions and make decisions that affect us. When I look at Betsy DeVos, in charge of education. I mean, you couldn't have asked for a worse person in the world. I mean, and she's only there because of her family's Amway and they've given, you know, billions of dollars to, to Trump's campaign. And that's the payback for all these people is you get a cabinet post if you give him a lot of money. And so we are now, um, we are now suffering the consequences of this. And it's a big hole to dig out of. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I feel I feel for Biden and Harris. I wish them all the luck in the world, but it's not not kind. Of, it's kind of like they're not starting on the playing field. They're starting about sixty feet subterranean and have to dig their way up to the playing field just to get started. So, yeah. it's and like I said, history major. I almost think of recent time of, even though he wasn't as stupid, George W. Bush. Oh yeah, when absolutely. Him, when him when him and Obama transitioned. Obama yeah. in certain aspects because of the financial crisis and everything yeah. was stepping a couple steps back and had to work exactly. his way. And I also am a smart ass and jokes and whatnot. We'll move on. But the jokes about George W were like, man, that guy's a moron. You go fast forward to now. He's a genius. Yeah, exactly. But Let's jump into music a little bit yeah, here. Please, what please. You do. We're, we're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So obviously you said you studied science, but you were at California State Northridge. Yeah. When you ran across a guy, some guy named James Taylor. So what? where did you guys actually meet in school? Because I know he asked you to play well, bass on some ven at some venues. Yeah, well, it wasn't at school. Um, what happened was um, in the late 60s, 68, 69, that period, I was in a, a, a local band called Wolfgang. And um, we were called Wolfgang because one of our managers was Bill Graham. And Bill Graham's real name was Wolfgang. So we named the band after him just to suck up to our, <laughs> you know, let's, what, what better way to ingratiate yourself to your manager than to name your band after him. But um, we had a drummer in the group, an English drummer named uh, Bugs Pemberton. And Bugs was a member of a group in London called Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers, who were kind of rivals of the Beatles at the time. And Jackie Lomax looked like a matinee idol, and Bugs was really handsome and stuff. Well, Bugs had a friend named John Fishbeck, who he engineered and produced like the early Stevie Wonder records, like Songs in the Key of Life and 
stuff like that. And he had a studio in town called Crystal Recording Studios where he worked. Um, he used to come and hang out at the rehearsals with us and we were all really good friends. Well, at one of our rehearsals, a friend of his uh, that he had known for years had just gotten back from England and he came up to the rehearsal with him and it was James Taylor. And he had just come back uh, after doing his first Apple album. And uh, he hung out for a couple of days and, and played us his songs. And, and it was just a hang. You know, nobody knew who James was over here. And um, then his James Taylor album had just been recorded over here when, when we met. And he got offered a gig at the Troubadour here in Los Angeles. So the band was Russ Kunkel on drums and Danny Korchmar, who goes way back with James to childhood, um, on guitar. And then the piano, the keyboard player was Carol King. And, Nobody knew who Carol King was at that point. They knew who Goffin and King were as a songwriting team, but had no idea about Carol. And they needed a bass player. And uh, James remembered me from this rehearsal and told Peter Asher, who was managing and producing him, about me. And they tracked me down and asked if I could do this gig at the Troubadour. I said, oh, I'd love to. I figured I was going to do one gig with the guy. I was still in college. And uh, that one gig turned into the rest of my life. I, I ended up, we got offered a tour. I left, I, I didn't even tell anybody I was leaving. I just, you know, never came back. And, uh, and we hit the road and James turned into like the next 20 years of, of my life. Because we never, we never had a conflict of schedules until 1990, where I had just finished a But Serious album with Phil Collins. And we had a tour book that was going to be 11 and a half months long. And uh, at that point, James and I, he, he got work after our tour had started. And, um, and at that point, I, I was committed to doing that other thing. So James, at that, we just had to part ways at that point. And, uh, and we didn't play again until a few years back or 10 years ago, whatever it was, when we did the Troubadour reunion tour with Carol King and James. Uh, but it was funny with Carol being in the band because James and we all kept encouraging her to go out and open the show, do a couple, some of her songs in it. And um, it was great. All of a sudden, she goes in the studio and ends up cutting Tapestry. So all of a sudden, you've got a member of your band has like the biggest record in the world at that point. So she had to move on and she left the group at that. She left us at that point and and started pursuing the solo career was that when she was playing with the section or well uh it was before that um, what happened on the very first tours it was um carol played joe mama um opened the show which was danny korchmar and uh, his group with his wife abigail singing and charlie larkey and joel o'brien and ralph shuckett and uh, and their name of the band was Joe Mama. And then Carol would do some songs and then James would do his set. So the early like first two years was that that lineup. And then when Carol left, I was doing an album with Tom Jans and Mimi Farina. Mimi was Joan Baez's younger sister. And there was a keyboard player on that session named Craig Durge. And um, I contacted Peter and I said, look, if Carol's leaving, I think I found the keyboard player that, to replace her. 
And so Craig joined up and that's how the section formed because the section was Russ and Cooch and myself and Craig. And then we would open the shows for James or Jackson Brown because we did the same with him. We would open the show, then come back out and play their set too. So it was a real vibrant period. And Carol, oh, wow. ended, up, and Carol ended up marrying Charlie Larkey who was the bass player in Joe Mama. So he was the bass player on Tapestry um, because they, they had got, gotten married. So I mean, it's, it's very convoluted, all these things. It's Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned the Troubadour, and you're out on the West Coast. The yeah. Troubadour, for anybody who knows anything about music, was such a legendary venue. Still is, but I don't know what – I've heard some things about it. They're struggling. Yeah, uh, like Elton John's first uh, – yeah. Less shows were there. Yeah. Some, some talent, another one you worked with, Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. And some of her guys would, who were backup band. I don't know. I think they were named Glenn Fry and Don Henley. Ended up yeah, becoming some the Eagles. Kind of a, some kind of a bird band or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, Carol King, you mentioned. Just, it's mind-boggling how much talent's come through that building. Yeah. So, what what made it special for you? Because like you said, you did the reunion tour and such there too. It's it was just one of these places that became Doug Weston, who owned it, um, created an environment that was. I mean, it was a funky club. I mean, it wasn't like you're going into some fancy place. It was funky, but for some reason, just the energy in the room was great. Because I used to go there. I, I mean, I would see um, got Cat Stevens, Carly Simon. Um, Steve Martin back in his early days when he was just doing stand-up and playing banjo. Um, I mean, exactly. Perfect. Um, any, every artist, like you said, with Elton, when Elton came there with the trio, with uh, Dee Murray and, and Nigel Olson, man, they changed the music scene. I mean, it blew everybody's minds. Uh, and, and I remember the, the section would play there and, and we would be opening for Etta James or, you know, I mean, it was like you. Another you, voice. Oh, God. You know, just it was a, an amazing venue. And then uh, it kind of fell into not disrepair, but just, you know, it, it, things got rough for a while. And then it became like a punk club and it was all kinds of like new wave and things. And over the years, though, it has held up. And when it, they were celebrating their 50th anniversary, I mean, Doug had passed away at, at this point, but what they, they thought, what better way to celebrate the 50 years there was we went back with James and Carol. It, it was the original band. So it was Carol on keyboards, Cooch, Russ, and myself and James. And we did a week there. Um, and it was incredible. I mean, it was like it was like being there yesterday, and all of a sudden we're back there all these years later. It was like old home week. It really was. It really was. But it went so well that they then pitched doing a, a really massive tour, and we ended up doing a, a huge arena tour. Um, but what we did was we did it in the round so that the stage was – elevated in the middle of the arenas we had a huge like 10 giant you know high def screens above the stage that so even people in the nosebleed sections could see perfectly but we built a club around the raised stage um, that went out about 15 feet or 10 feet 
and it was filled with tables and lamps and chairs. And so we felt like we were playing still in a club, even though we were in an arena. And it was, it was amazing. There's kind of that old adage that you can't go home. But we actually went home and it was great. Um, well, we had a fabulous time on it. The, 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 and so I hope they release it as we filmed the whole thing and they've never released it as far as I know. So yeah, I hope that happens. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny before I uh, lose track of it. You might, first of all, Linda Ronstadt. Well, and it's, you know, what do you think of her? Cause I, she's one of those that in my, and I have such the catalog of music. But Linda is one of those go-to for me. Yeah. That she did country, she did rock, she did, you know, she crossed genres. Yeah. But for you. I think she's one of the greatest voices of the generation. Uh, I mean, I've, I know a number, I've worked with a lot of great singers in my, in my career. And Linda's right there at the top. She had the most incredible voice. She also had just this incredible passion about music. Um, and I know like when she did Lush Life, um, they fought her about doing that. The label and everybody, why are you doing that? You know, you're, you're a pop singer. And she ends up with one of her mo biggest selling albums by going back, hooking up with Nelson Riddle and Nelson pulls out all the charts that he did with Sinatra. And there's Linda singing all this stuff with this great orchestra. And then she turns around and does La Boheme on Broadway in Pirates of Penzance. And then she, she's, she's of Mexican heritage and she loved all the music her it father did. raised her on. So she did the, uh, the, the tribute to her father with all the Mexican music and the mariachis. Yep. Um, and then the stuff we did like, you know, with Aaron Neville and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, she's, she is, her hunger uh, for music was really something to behold. I mean, she was very, an incredibly smart girl. Um, she could be a complete goofball knucklehead, but um, very bright, really well-read and very thoughtful, kind person. Um, you know, and that's like one of the unbelievable tragedies to have this, this profound gift um, taken, taken away, from her, taken away um, from her like this. With the illness and all, you know. Yeah. And, but the good thing is, in back in the day, you may or may not have seen it, especially those early days of the Troubadour. Yeah. Rumor was she can drink most of the guys under the table, too. Yeah, I mean, I spent a ton of time with Linda, and I never really... Because I was never a drinker, so I, I was never hanging out. Like when everybody started drinking, I would just bail because there's nothing more boring than being the sober person with a bunch mm -hmm. of drinkers. <laughs> Especially when you get on a, like you, you have like an eight hour bus ride after a gig and somebody starts going, I love you, man. Have I told you I love you, man? You know, and you're going, shut up. Just get in your bunk and go to sleep, please. Yeah. God. Um, but Linda, you know, Linda's a, she was a real tough little cookie. I mean, it's amazing how many guys wanted Pete Hamill, um, Jerry Brown, all these guys, George Lucas, everybody wanted to marry her and she didn't want to get married. You know, mm -hmm. she would date all the guys and hang with them and then would move on. I mean, she was, she's quite an independent spirit. That's yes. for sure. And I, I call her on a pretty regular basis and we talk and how's she doing? Hanging, she's hanging in you know, as best she can. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm gl glad to hear that as someone who's always been a fan of her work, yeah. that know the story. So, yeah, 
But I want to reach back into the college days because you mentioned them briefly. You worked as an usher at the Hollywood Bowl when the Beatles played. Yeah. Obviously, the Beatles changed generations of music. Yeah. But to see them live at one of their considered most famous shows, what was that like for you? It was mind-blowing. It was funny. I I had, um, the year before they played, I was still a teenager. I mean, I was like 16 or 15 when I did. I signed up to be an usher at the bowl. Um, And uh, so my name was on a list over there. They didn't need anybody at that point. Then when I heard the Beatles were going to play, I immediately sent away for tickets to the show and then I got and they said no we're sold out you know there's nothing you know, sorry kid uh, and then I got a, 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 a it was either a, a, a something in the mail or a phone call that said we have a special concert coming up and we need extra ushers are you available and it turned out it was the Beatles <laughs> you know had I yeah, just I think I can make time for that yeah so I actually got paid $5 to see the Beatles because that's what they paid the ushers was five bucks a night. And the thing that was great about that was number one, I actually got to hear them live and they were great live. I mean, and that was pre big sound systems. They didn't have wedges or anything. You know, there was no monitors on stage. They were just a band on stage playing and some microphones through the system. But the thing I remember, and I think it was, uh, there was a DJ named Real Don Steele. And I think he was the one who introduced him where the lights in the Hollywood Bowl went out and a, a spotlight hit the side of the stage. And he came out and he said, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, all of a sudden, you could have been on the surface of the sun with flash cameras going off for the entire show. I mean, it was blinding because it never stopped. I mean, they were taking pictures and screaming for the whole thing. But I worked my way down near the front of the stage. And so I could hear them. And and it was it was really amazing. And when I finally, I, I met Paul for the first time in 1990 doing a concert um, at, in Nebworth uh, outside of London. And it, it was amazing. It was when we played with Phil Collins and we combined our band with Genesis um, but it was Page and Plant and Pink Floyd and Elton John and McCartney and Clapton. I mean, it was like everybody you could imagine on this thing. So I was sitting and talking to Paul and uh, told him about that. And he, it, he's, it kind of blew his mind that I had been an usher there because he, you know, he knew who I was and, you know, we, we hooked up. But the thing that was really cool also was by the fact that I got to do that show, they kept me on for the whole season. So I got to see... The Love and Spoonful, Jimi Hendrix, the Ravi Shankar India Festival. Um, uh, I mean, the Beach Boys. It was like the shows there, you know, Vanilla Fudge, like all these amazing bands. So it was a great year for me just to see those guys and, and, and spend the whole year at the bowl, the season. Well, obviously, I know you were involved with Asylum Records as a studio guy. And I've heard over the years that people had issues with asylum or certain people with the organization. How was it with you? Um, You know, it's funny. Sometimes I see reviews and they talk about like the section and all of us as like the asylum house band. Um, We worked with every label. We hadn't, you know, if they pulled up like Jackson or somebody, if there was an asylum artist, 
um, we would work with them. But if there was a Warners or a Capital or an RCA artist, we'd work with them. So we, we weren't we weren't uh, associated with actually with any labels. All of our associations were with artists and producers. Um, and from my standpoint, um, I never, as a studio player, we had no relationship with the labels whatsoever. All you did was submit invoices and hope you got paid. <laughs> but we didn't have to deal with any of the, you know, the, the political stuff that might go on within a label as an artist or a manager might have to deal with. So, you know, I've heard lots of stories about all the different labels and stuff. I mean, there, there's an element of all of this where you look back to the days of the record labels and it was, it was a love-hate thing compared to now, where with the label, you kind of knew going in, you were probably going to get screwed a little bit by it. But there was a machinery in place that could get you airplay, that could get product out, um, where now I work on a ton of records that are done indie. And after it's done, I get phone calls from artists or their producer going, any idea who we could, what we could do with this? because the label really did all of that stuff. And now everybody kind of sits there with product and really not sure what to do. You know, it's a, it, it's a very bizarre time. It's a difficult time. Um, there are successful artists out there, but the, uh, the, uh, the journey is, is a lot more difficult now than it was back then. There's so many people making their own records at home because, you know, the technology is, is you know, it is so cheap at this point that you can put together some fairly competent music uh, on a shoestring, but it's what happens to that music after you've cut it. That's the difficult part. Yeah, where, in it, that's kind of where I was gonna go with that because you made your money on tour from what I heard. And like you said, there was a certain process with the labels and stuff back in the day. Yeah. But do you think as good as it is with the technology being available that it is, or where we are in 2020, do you think that's hurt the industry for up and coming artists trying to make make their mark? Um, there's maybe an element of that. I think one of the things that's bothered me with the technology is the technology can be so forgiving that people who should not be making music are making music. If they can't sing in tune, you can pitch correct them. If the drummer can't play in time, you can quantize them and fix. I mean, so much is fixable where when I started, you went in the studio, you either did it or you didn't do it. Um, you, you, if you were a singer, you walk up to the mic and you sang, you didn't do 30 vocals and then comped them, then pitch corrected them and move things around. And so there's a part of that where, you know, I don't want to be the old fart in the room, you know, talking about the good old days. But there was an element of that where the people who really were in the studio were there because they had they had the chops to do it. Where now everybody seems to think they can buy a, a little simple laptop, in a, in, you know, and, and, and upload a, a few, you know, apps into it and a couple of plugins, and they can make a record. Um, yeah. But. Um, that being said, some people are turning out great music that way. So, you know, I, I'm not looking at that as a total negative. It's just, it's a, the processes have changed so much from, you know, from when I started and, and it was all LPs. And then you've gone through all these different formats of digital 
And, uh, you know, and that, that, that I think changed things dramatically in terms of this being a viable business, because uh, I remember, you know, when I was in college, if I went to somebody's house and I, and they said, I got to check this album out and they play me like vanilla fudge or something like that, I'd be at the record store buying it. I'd scrape some money together and go buy it because I wanted my copy to listen to. But then once CDs and all that happened, all of a sudden one person would buy it and then everybody else would, you know, when, when cassettes were happening, you could maybe get one copy of it before it started deteriorating um, quality wise. But with the advent of, of digital um, and CDs, it, all of a sudden you could make tons of copies. Like some people would invest in a copying machine and just, each person would buy a couple of CDs and then they'd burn a hundred of them or something. Yeah. It's, it's all different now. There's, there's lots that I miss from those days. I I miss album art, um, miss, miss um, credits, just trying to find out who played on a record nowadays is a pain in the ass. I found this with my YouTube channel. I try to do as much documentation as I can and I'm going through disc Discog and all music and all these different sites, Wikipedia, just trying to find out sometimes who played on a record um, where, you know, in the old days, it was right there in front of you and it was entertaining. So it's all different, you know, but life goes on. And, uh, you know, my, my biggest concern right now is that the world gets healthy enough where we can, that, that number one, that clubs can, as many clubs as possible can survive because so many are, are going under because you've got rent, you've got all the utilities, all this stuff, you can't bring in one person to, to pay a dollar at this point. So, you know, for the ones that come, you know, that are able to sustain themselves through this whole pandemic, uh, I can't wait to get into those places, support them, play in them, uh, and just get out and play music again. I mean, this has been the most exasperating this is certainly the longest period I've ever gone in my entire life of not being working. And um, it's, uh, it's really, it's heartbreaking. And so many players that I know everywhere are all feeling the same thing and everybody's chomping at the bit right now. It's going to be kind of like the start of the Indy 500. The minute things open up, everybody's going to be running out, jumping in their car and hauling ass, just trying to get to the front of the line. Yeah. It's funny. I was a, uh text with a previous guest uh, who was a known artist himself and writer and whatnot in the country field and mm-hmm. lives in the Nashville area. And I, you know, just check in, Hey, how you doing with everything? And, you know, yeah, we talk work, but it's like, Hey, how you doing? How are your kids doing? How, you know, the other stuff. And he said, man, every time it's one of the first things he says is, Man, I'm chomping at the bit. You just said it there. The musicians are just so go, go, go. He's used yeah. to. It had, but it has to be safe. And that's what's really pissed me yeah. off. Like a, about a month and a half ago, I think Sammy Hagar um, said, oh, man, we got to open up the concerts. We got to get people there again. You know, I'm ready. I'm chomping at the bit to get out there. Let's do some concerts. And I'm thinking, fuck you, because who's the safest person in that venue? him you know you're not thinking at all about the people that are jammed like sardines for hours down in the audience you'll show up you'll kind of work your way up to the stage you'll sing your songs and then you'll carefully go off stage and you're out of there and without any consideration and it pissed me off just like a, about two weeks ago 
Van Morrison and Clapton came out with a song about opening everything up again. We need our concerts. And I'm going, how irresponsible can you be? Because this is life and death for the audience. And you know that if they put on a concert, people would go berserk and buy tickets and show up. And then you would see like after Thanksgiving and what we're going to see after Christmas and New Year's, numbers would be spiking. I mean, just look at how bad it was after, um, oh, what's it, what's it called? Um, the big motorcycle thing that was up in the Dakotas. Um, I know what you're talking about. Was it a Sturgis? Yeah, Sturgis. I mean, they said the numbers were astronomical after that, the, how much COVID was going through that, that, you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be right there at the front of it with our band and with anything that comes along when it's safe for everybody. That's I don't want to see anybody. It's not worth doing a concert if one person dies or gets sick at it. So, you know, we're, we're all trying to be as reasonable as we can with our band. We're, we're, moving forward every day doing videos writing we're going to go back in the studio again even though we have an album ready to be released we've we've amassed so much material that we're going to go in and we're going to do more another album while we're waiting on this one to be released so that we have you know the creative process doesn't stop because of this exactly but we're, you know, as soon as they say you guys can hit the road, man, we'll be out there, like you know, going. We're we're on it, uh, especially with the documentary film and all that. You know, we'll be out, you know, playing the film festivals and all that stuff. But it has to be safe. Exactly. Well, I'm curious to know. I got a couple of equipment questions before I let sure. you go. And little birdie told me anyway that you actually cut up your first upscale bass which was a 62 jazz bass <laughs> why would you cut up your first quality yeah, I, I was an idiot i was out of my mind um yeah i i, I had um an opportunity my first bass uh was i think a um a melody bass a, a kind of a cheap japanese bass then i upgraded to an echo bass which kind of looked like a hofner but it was you know a low-end Thing like that. Then an opportunity came along to get this perfectly mint 62 jazz bass, candy apple red, perfect for 90 bucks. And I, I scraped my money together, got it. And I was, and this was back when I was in college. So this was probably around 66, 1966 that I got. And I was just sitting around one night. I'd been doing homework and watching TV. I was in sharing an apartment with like about five other people and stuff. And I pulled out a hacksaw and a, and a knife and cut the horn off of it, shaped it more like a Les Paul and, uh, and then started carving the body up. And it has like a peace sign and an onk and it says love and because it real, even though I wasn't really a hippie at all, uh, it had a lot of hippie feel for it. I had a picture of Frank Zappa decoupaged on the back of it because I was a huge mother's fan and stuff. Um, then when I, first time I went to play it, I went, oh crap, I cut so much wood off of it that it was neck heavy. So I still have the original strap that has a two pound block of lead in the end of the strap for ballast, <laughs> keep it balanced. But it's the bass I played on all of the early James Taylor. It's the bass I played on Billy Cobham's Spectrum album. Um, it still is a great instrument. I've still got it here at home. Well, is, I was gonna ask, is that the Frankenstein bass? No, it's Frankenstein was never a bass in the first place. Frankenstein, uh, 
and the reason I call it Frankenstein is because I, I, it's like body parts. It was never a real instrument. I, I somehow came upon a 62 precision, uh, Fender precision neck. Um, I'm not a precision fan. I like jazz bass neck better. Um, so uh, our, there's a Westwood music used to be the watering hole for all the musicians in town, Fred Wallachie's store in Westwood. And anytime you went in there, you'd see like David Lindley or Ry Cooter or Jackson Brown, all these guys just playing instruments and hanging out. Um, John Carruthers ran the repair department there. And I had this neck, so I got together with John and we, I brought my old carved base over and we made a template of that neck. And then he reshaped that precision neck into being like the 62 jazz that I had. Then I needed a body. So there was a company called Charvel that made replacement parts out here. And I went out to their factory and there was a huge, a big stack of um, uh, precision based bodies, alder bo alderwood bodies. And I just hung each one by a piece of wire and tapped on them and one base, just res one body resonated beautifully. So I bought that, brought it back to John and uh, we ended up getting the first EMG pickups when uh, Rob Turner started EMG. And um, when we reshaped the neck, we had to pull the frets out to reshape the neck. And when we refretted it, I had him do it with mandolin frets, which are the smallest fret wire you could get. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like all these weird pieces. I have the first hip shot detuner on my E string. It was one of the prototypes that Dave made. and. So needless to say, that's where Frankenstein came from. It's just this, a bunch of body parts. And when we plugged it in, it could have sucked. You just don't know, but man, we plugged it in. And I mean, it's sitting right here. <laughs> this is it. I've you seen know, pictures, it's, it's signed and you- Oh, there's autographs all over the thing. And it's everybody, I mean, it's everybody's on here from like Lynn Swan of the Pittsburgh Steelers to George Lucas to Peter Max to I've got you know Jeff Picaro's on here and I've got um, Hugh Padgham, great engineer Hugh Padgham, but I've got like Clapton and Vinnie Cayuta and Sting and all kinds of people on it. So it's a and it's an exquisite sounding bass. I use it every day. Um, I've got two signature basses with two different companies that Warwick and Dingwall. Yeah, Dingwall is only, it's a five string, and that's my only five string is a Dingwall. And then the Warwick is a chambered semi-acoustic bass. So none of these, it's an, like, I'm not one of those gear whores that, you know, throws their name on everything. Um, these were very specific instruments that we designed that I use when the right instrument for it. Um, and uh, I, I, from myself, to keep that all really straight. I've never, I don't get, I get zero money for uh, for my signature models. It was really strictly to, to make a better bass. Um, Cause I, I really get tired of picking up like Bass Player Magazine and seeing these guys doing all these ads. And I know that they don't use those instruments and stuff. It's just a hustle. And yeah. uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of these. They're really good instruments. The Dingwall is my main touring um, bass because uh, I don't change instruments on stage um, that much and, and if I need a five string I'll just use the five string for the whole show and uh, but they're they're really sweet and Sheldon 
Um, they're really great companies. Uh, Hans Peter, who owns Warwick, I love working with Hans and Sheldon Dingwall. I've been with Sheldon now for probably 18, 19 years at least um, using his bases. So those three bases kind of cover everything for me, Frankenstein and these two. Well, obviously we've talked about you both being on tour, but a studio musician as well. Yeah. 600 albums and such. And you've, like we said, we, you've played with Aaron Neville, Dolly Parton, Oak Ridge Boys, Neil Diamond, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, and Ray Charles, all these guys. Yeah. And gals and just Joe Cocker and Phil Collins. What a, going back to the, all that, both stage and recording. Yeah. Do you tend to use the same bass or I'm going to use this style for on stage compared to when I'm doing studio sessions? No. No, I just use what feels right for the moment on it. Um, I don't really see a differentiation uh, between them. The only thing I, do, I would do in the studio, I, I might have, you know, three basses with me, just depending on what the songs are going to be, where live, I'll maybe just use the ding wall for the, for the live gig, just, you know, just because, like I said, I don't, I'm not one of those guys that's up there changing instruments all the time on stage. I just, I like having my one bass and I can do everything on that. But um, I don't really, the, only, the, the biggest difference for me between live and, and studio is probably the amp rig where um, I've, I've been with a company called Euphonic Audio out of New Jersey um, for many, many, many years now. And uh, I use, I have three different sizes of rigs with them. I, I, when I work with Judith Owen, who's, I, I absolutely adore. She's married to Harry Shearer. And, um, Simpsons she's, fame. Yeah, she's a Welsh singer, songwriter, pianist. When I go out with her, we usually do real small rooms and I'll take out like a single 10 and, and a little doubler head and I'll stick it under a chair that I'm sitting on with her. When I'm in the studio, I use the euphonic audio um, combo, which is, I think it's got a single 12 in it and, and it's the IAMP 800 head. And then when I'm out with like Phil Collins or any of the live gigs that I was doing, Toto or anybody, I use a single four by 10, a one by 12 and like probably the pro series head. Um, but they're all, you know, each one's just kind of, they're all great and they all accommodate Th that moment, um, uh, you know, in, in time, just depending what's needed. Like with Phil Collins, I mean, we were playing stadiums, yet on stage, we could sit and talk to each other. We don't play loud on stage because you got this massive sound system you're carrying with you and a great front of house guy. Why, why, why fight that? You know, so we, you know, we, we, we're healthy. It's, it's a good stage level, but it's not like, you know, you're not up there blasting away. Um, your ears aren't ringing at the end of the show on stage or anything like that. Yeah, I'm guessing it would have been in the 80s when I was either right before I was born or maybe as a little child. I don't know when it was uh -huh. to say. But would you have been playing with Phil uh, when they maybe doing a stadium tour such as Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia? Yeah, probably. I toured with Phil from I was with Phil from 84 through 90. And then after that, we parted ways in the 90s. And then I joined back up with him in 2000. On that uh, tour you were talking about. Yeah, the, on a final farewell. And then we just finished the Not Dead Yet tour. Yeah, because uh, the reason I brought that up, 
the vet, veteran stadium is because yeah. I remember my parents and other people that I'm around going to those shows. So yeah, it was great. I love that's a great venue. I, I always love playing there. I like getting back there anyhow. That's I, I love being in that part of the country. Is there a uh, particular city or cities that you enjoy going to when you're on tour? Oh God, you know that's the beauty. I mean, to me, that's really the beauty of of this gig is the travel. You know, so I've I've you know I can kind of enjoy almost every place we go. I'm I'm one of these people that I love to get out whatever time I've got and explore, you know, the cities that we're in, you know, like all through Europe. I mean, I love being in Italy and Germany and Greece and France and Scandinavia. Um, I love being in Japan. We went through the Middle East um, and all over the States in South America. So, you know, I, I, you know, I have memories from every place and almost all of them are positive. You know, I mean, you know, traveling down the west coast of Norway, you know, and just just mind boggling how beautiful and, and it is. And that was when I was out with Toto or we went to Iceland and, you know, and being in Reykjavik and, and traveling around the country. And, you know, I, I love it all. It's it's one of the great perks that comes with touring is the chance to see the world. And uh, yeah. I can't believe when guys go on the road and they sit in a hotel room. Take advantage of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, God, how often are you going to get here? And you might find a place where you go, I've got to come back here again on my own and check this out, you know, because it's pretty, pretty amazing. But I worked for many years with an, a French artist named Veronique Sanson, who was married to Stephen Stills back in the 70s. And uh, she's still one of the biggest artists in France. And um, so I would spend like a couple of months a year touring um, France with her. And it was always fantastic. And we would maybe get up to Belgium and Luxembourg and, and, and parts of Switzerland uh, with her. But, you know, I mean, it's like you find all these beautiful little cities and, you know, just playing everywhere. It's, it's magic to me. I, I pinch myself every day thinking how fortunate I am that I've had this be my career. Don't take it for granted at all. Yeah. Could be digging ditches. Not that there's anything been, wrong with been digging ditches. Been there, been there. <laughs> but if folks want to get the book or obviously do you want to oh, plug, sure. plug the YouTube and the book and all again? Yeah, um, I would love it, man. If, there's a couple of things. Um, I would love it if they would come to my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and put in Leland Sklar. And that channel will pop up and, and subscribe doesn't cost anything to subscribe. I've got a, some serious hardcore people on there's about 143,000 people on the channel now that are really dedicated to it. And I'm dedicated to them. And I've put up a video every single day since the pandemic began. And I, I plan on continuing that. Um, if they could go to our immediate family uh, YouTube channel, and subscribe there. We're building that channel now, which is really fun. We got a lot of content going in there. Um, if they want the book, I'll show you the cover. Everybody loves me. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. And it's, it's massive. It's a six pound, really high quality coffee table book with about 6,000 photographs of everybody flipping me off. With kindness and love, um, yes. but if they want, if they want to check that out, um, the website we created for it is 
lelandscalarsbeard.com because somebody bought up my name as Leland or Lee and I couldn't access myself. So we just said the hell with it. So it's lelandsclarsbeard.com and I've got those t-shirts that the front of the t-shirt is my beard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've got that, that. And, I'm, and, I'm, and, I, and I was also, I was an art and science major in college. So I've got a bunch of my artwork with real high quality prints on there. So I'm looking at all kinds of options of things to do because because I need to do things. And in the YouTube channel, there's a shop there that also has t-shirts and hoodies and mugs and all, all that stuff. So I became an entrepreneur during this period. Hey, it's a way to make a living. Yeah. I mean, it's also a way to bring some things out that just make people smile. Yeah. And that really, to me, is is the is the most important thing. I mean, I'm I'm anxious to get to a break break even point on the book because uh, right now it's still massively out of pocket for me. But it felt like the right thing to do, and um, and I'm looking at it as as a long term thing. Um, but I'm I mean, when the orders come in, I'm I'm sitting here next to a laser printer. I'm printing all my labels. I get the books. I package them, I sign them, I mail them. So this is like, I, I went from being in an orchestra to a one-man band. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty insane. But before I let you go, you mentioned this early with the book uh, when I did the introduction. You had 12,000 plus photos and the books down to six. Yeah. How did you choose who was, which pictures were making a cut? Um, I, the guy who, who helped me do the book, um, I, I let him kind of look at a lot of the pictures too. A lot of it came down to resolution on, on pictures because, you know, a lot of pictures were just like, most of them are spur of the moment things and some, uh, you know, didn't resolve that well. And there's tons I wish were in there when I look at it. Um, but there was to do a 12,000 picture book would have been just insane. It would have been so big and huge. Um, but if the time comes, if this actually ends up doing well and, and there's a desire for a volume two, um, I'm well on my way to that. Cause when I look at this and I think about people who aren't in this book, I go, Oh God, why the hell is, is, isn't that picture in here? But we also just got into this zone. You know, when you're looking at pictures day in and day out, you can kind of space out on it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's everybody who's gotten them so far has written to me going, this is so much better than I thought it w- would be. It's like, because it's really um, extremely high quality. I, I get books all the time and they're pretty cheesy. This one, I mean, it's got a padded cover on it and it's, it's a real coffee table book. So mm-hmm. um It'll be fun just to see how people respond when they come into somebody's house and they see it sitting there and they start to look at it going, what? <laughs> What's this? <laughs> you know, but yeah. then they'll see like, you know, Jack Nicholson and Lawrence Fishburne and Jeremy Irons. And, you know, I mean, there's like all kinds of people, you know, Cheryl Crow and Melissa Etheridge and Bonnie Raitt and Paul Williams. But then there's just you know, people that I've worked in the studio with and stuff. And I, I look at everybody as important. So I don't have like a celebrity section or anything. Everybody's mixed together because this is humanity. And the thing I find the most engaging about it is there's like a half a dozen ways to give the finger, but the faces are infinite. Like right now, you're just flipping me off there. Thank yeah. you. Hey, no problem. Uh, 
Um, but to see people's faces when you empower them and say, come on, give me the finger and you get everything from this to, uh, you know, kind of the whole gamut. gamut. It's a lot of fun. Well, Lee, took up enough of your time. Oh, man, no, it's a pleasure. I love, enjoy hanging with you. I'll do it anytime you ever want. Thank you so much and happy holidays. You too, man. Stay safe. That's the key. That's the critical one. Yes. With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact, Jack! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out to contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about.